Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, still morning, isn't it? Yes, it is. Good to see you. Um, good to see a couple of you whom we haven't seen for a while or a couple of weeks. So it's good to have you all back. We're finishing the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I don't think we'll finish it today, but I suspect we probably will next week. Uh, I decided to, and I think it's probably the last time I do this, but I decided to draw this on the board one more time. We're at the part in Ecclesiastes, and it's really almost the entire last two-thirds of the book, where Solomon, um, uh, presumably the writer, uh, reminds us of who God is. We went through his attributes and all of that, which uh, I won't write up again. And what he really is saying to us in um, one way or another and that stick man is supposed to be you and me. But uh, we face a daily choice, and it's, it's a daily choice. I guess you could say it's an hourly choice. Are we going to follow the path of the wise person or the path of the fool? The path of the fool is the person who chooses sin, rebellion, and disobedience to God. The path of the wise man is the one who chooses the path of, uh, of faith, of trust in God, and obedience to God. And Solomon is saying, and and this is what we were talking about last week, as we choose the path of wisdom, that doesn't mean we get all our questions answered, and it doesn't mean we always know what God's doing. And if you remember last week, we talked quite a bit about that. God is infinite. We are finite. God is eternal. We are bound to time. We're temporal. And just those, those two contrasts themselves give you enough evidence to indicate I'm not always going to really know what's going on. I'm not always going to be able to get the answers that I want. So just a reminder, that's what we've been doing. Now, in the life of a wise person, actually, I want to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 10. Um, what's a wise person? I'm going to put it the way the New Testament puts it often. Uh, 10. Chapter 10, words are tongue. Um, you can appear to be a very wise person, even the choices you make in life, until you open your mouth you start saying something. Uh, when, I, uh, when I was a little boy, I played baseball a lot, and uh, there was a, a kid on our... Jerry, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Sandlot. Sandlot, that's, that was my neighborhood. We just played baseball all the time. And, I mean, it was really, uh, that, really that, that, that really kind of defined us. And there was a guy on our team, and we didn't have a team until later, but anyway, the guy we played with, he was just, he was a real rascal. He would just say things and get everybody, you know, uh, upset and churned up. And, and then finally, everybody would get to a point, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And then we kind of lash out at him, and he'd run away, say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know, and it made me more angry. But, um, you know, over the years I've thought of that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There's probably no greater lie than that. Uh, words can really, really hurt. And so Solomon is, as he's closing this section out, because chapter 10 and chapter, excuse me, chapter 11 and chapter 12 really go together, and we'll, we'll be dealing with that in a minute. But words from the wise, from the mouth of the wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool 
consume him. He's consumed by what he says. His words are self-destructive. So, okay, that's good. A wise man who's choosing this path, one of the greatest evidences that he's wise is what he says. And one of the greatest evidences of, of a fool is what he says. Um, let's think about that t- together for just a moment. Um, do, you, do you concur with that? Does that? That's almost common sense, isn't it? That a person who's really wise is a person you want to be around. You want to listen to what they say. I mean, if, they're, if they write, you want to read what they write. I mean, you just sense this, this person has something to say to me. But the fool, his words are actually self-destructive. That's what Solomon means by they consume him. Um, that's, that's such a self-evident common sense statement. Continuing, the beginning of his talking is folly. The end of his wicked, the end of it is wicked madness. A fool's words are folly. They're foolish. They're silly. They're stupid. They're inane, and they <laughs> they really reflect a wicked madness. Um, modern day situation comedy television. It's the foolish stuff. Either that's the Lord calling us or somebody didn't turn or something off. So, um, but you know what I mean? It's there's, there's, and I don't mean to just camp on, on television, but you are almost wasting time listening to or observing that kind of stuff. It's foolish talk. It's, it absolutely has no edification, no, no end to it that's valuable. Um, so what do we do with that? Yet the fool multiplies his words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? Now, okay, why end why with that rhetorical question? Because the fool sounds like he really knows what he's talking about, but the bottom line is, he doesn't know what the future's going to bring, and he can't tell what will happen after him. You don't know what tomorrow's going to be. So all Solomon is doing is saying, choose very carefully, personally your words, and choose very carefully whom you're going to listen to. Let's think of that applicationally. What does that mean for you? You seen that recent Geico commercial? <laughs> uh, boy, a lot of them are racing through my mind right now. One of them says 15 minutes will save you a bunch of money or something like that. And then, and then the guy responds, do you know that words can hurt? Then it shows the guy on a horse, and this woman is asking him, don't leave, don't leave. He says, I'm a loner, and loners have to be alone. And he rides off, and then there's the big letters saying the end, and he and he rides into a knock. Oh my goodness! <laughs> words can hurt you. I get it. I get it. Okay. Oh my goodness. That's, no, that's, that's actually. Uh, you say that's a Geico uh, uh, brand thing commercial. That's really good. Yeah, that's. Really <laughs> 
I appreciate your rationalization there. That's that's really good. It explains that. That's good though. I've got I've got to look for that commercial. That, that's a lot of fun. I prefer to think what you were studying up for this. One. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You were trying to gather illustrations of the point Solomon's making. Okay. Kind of the assistant teacher here. Yeah, because <laughs> he is sitting at the end. He sits in the other position of authority in the room. How how else? And, and I, I honestly, I want you to process this for a little bit with me. How else would you apply something like this? It's one of those common sense, self-evident observations. But how would you apply it to your life? You need to be very, very careful about what you read and the philosophies you listen to. Absolutely. There was somebody talking about uh, the uh, the way people are able to post comments on articles. And they said that because it's anonymous, people don't feel inhibited at all to write very atrocious, mild mm. <coughs> comments. But he said you could really solve that problem if they had to post their name on those comments. So you would see that change very quickly. And I thought there was a lot of truth. Mm. Um, but that seemed to be a big problem. I know we, we can do and say those things and do it in an anonymous way. You know, I, I I used to believe that until the Facebook phenomenon came along. Now people say some of the most outrageous things and do attach the name to it, uh, and that's and I but I agree with you. But I mean, it's it's almost uh, in the real meaning of those words. It's almost incredible and unbelievable what you can see on Facebook, and they they do attach their names to that. But um, yeah, a bit don't. One of the consistent themes of the Bible, here we see it in the Old Testament, you see it in other parts of the wisdom literature, you see it in the New Testament, and Joel just cited a very powerful one from the book of James, is um, the words that come out of your mouth Tell, tell more about who you are than anything else. And I, uh, I am, I mean, primarily my role, much of my adult life has been a teacher, has been someone who does speak and talk a great deal. And that, um, I've, I've really come to absolutely embrace that as true. And I talk to my students about that all of the time. Uh, it, it is so important that we understand that best, Intuitively, as, as 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 individuals, as human beings, but also got God's perspective on it. Um, it really, really, really matters in your conversation with your wife, your spouse, your children, uh, people, work, colleagues, etc. Um, our words can either shred, or our words can really help and edify people. It can either be, it doesn't, you, you, if you're in leadership, you, you must call people to account. But you have to, you have to be able to do it in such a way that you're not attacking their person or character. It's their performance. Uh, with your children, you don't want to, Paul uses a word in Colossians when he's addressing parents. He says, don't exasperate your children. And you can do that, you can do that, you can do that by what you say about them. 
And so Solomon is just Solomon is saying in a, in these proverbial ways. That's what they are. They're proverbs. It really matters. And one of the signs of a wise person versus a foolish person is the words you use. And that's a daily choice. It's a daily choice. Have you ever been uh, out, uh, and I, I'm not sure I hear that as much as I used to, but you're out in public uh, in a store or something like that, and you hear a, a, a husband call his wife his old lady. Again, I haven't heard that quite as much, but I used to hear that a lot. That, I, don't, I don't care how and why that developed. That is a terrible thing to say in public about your wife. It's demeaning. It's disrespectful. You're, communi- you're communicating something to everyone else about how you feel in terms of your wife. Have you ever been in a grocery store or a toy store or something like that, and you know there are a whole bunch of kids, little kids, running around, and the mother or the father is just screaming at them? And my, uh, one time my wife, who rarely, Peggy rarely says anything. She's extremely quiet and reserved and very circumspect about the words she uses. She just made one comment when, I don't remember where we were, but it was a number of years ago. That's the worst form of discipline there is. That's all she said. Screaming at the kids. I mean, you know, saying terrible things. And they, you know, that really had an effect on the kids. They kept running, you know. And it's just uh, how we speak, the words we say, um, probably give more evidence of whether we're fooled or wise person, anything else? So, uh, Fred. Well, one of the things that I think we've we've talked about marriage in the past here too is that um, guys tend to take charge, and we are the head of the home in many ways, and yet we defer to our wives in other areas. But um, I think if, if as husbands we're the first to listen and the last to speak. I think we can learn, like you're kind of saying, I learned that from Peggy. Mm, definitely. We can, on the end tape, learn something, and then maybe a, a comment we were going to have, suddenly we realize that's not relevant here at all. That would be counterproductive. So just listen and understand what she's saying, and then we can follow in behind that rather than being first to speak and the last to listen, which mm. typically mm. defines guys, mm. I think. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question here. Fred, you just reminded me of something that I think is quite important in a discussion like this. <clears throat> What's the significance ah. of listening? Shows respect. In communication. <clears throat> Shows respect. And what what is what is listening? What is what does that really mean? It's just not my ears are in tune and I'm hearing the word. What what is listening? What does that really mean? Considering I'm giving you my considering full what's been being said and giving it some thought. What's the goal of listening? To understand. Understanding. Um, what are some? I'm I'm thinking you know this, but let me remind you of this. Uh, I use this stuff in my premarital counseling with with young young couples, actually old couples too, if I do it. But anyway, seven percent of meaning is communicated by words. Seven percent. The other ninety three percent comes from all other aspects, categories, tone of voice, 
eye contact, uh, your demeanor, the way you look, the history of the relationship. The I mean, all of those things communicate meaning. Well, I've got English, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember uh, Joanna was really little. I, I don't know, she may have been about five or six. But she, it was, so I think she was in first grade, and maybe it was kindergarten, but real early. And she was so excited. She was telling me about her day, and I'm sitting at the table, and I had, I had a book in front of me. Well, it's good rain. I had a book in front of me, and, you know, I was listening to her, but I was looking down at the book, and you know what she did? She came over and she said, Daddy, I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know, I was, I mean, I, and I said, Honey, I'm here. And it, 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 it just hit me again. One of the most important responsibilities I have as a dad is to listen to my children, which means for Joanne, I have to find out what does that mean to her. Eye contact was extremely important to Joanne. I mean, it was, it was absolutely the most important indicator, at least at that point in her life, that I was listening to her was eye contact. And... Uh, I mean, as a teacher, one of the most important things you're a teacher is I watch everybody's eyes and body language. And if I've got a class of everybody, <laughs> so, this isn't working. So, you know, I, I walk around the room, I, you know, all those kinds of things. But the, the, listening is, is, is as valuable as a skill in communication as what we say. In other words, don't look at our watch. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because then I'll look at mine and say, it is time to quit. No, but. We, uh, I share, we do a, uh, we show a video of one of my classes, and it's a relationship, a relationship class, and we show these videos of actual couples talking and having discussion about a sensitive issue. And some of them you'll have on there, they're going at it pretty good, and you'll mm -hmm. hear some bleach, you know, and take mm -hmm. certain words. Because they forget about the camera, and they're just kind of mm -hmm. talking and arguing. And then we teach them the spirit, uh, or speaker-listener technique. And one of the key components that I always say, if you get nothing else in this whole little exercise of your book, one of the things they have to do is, and they show them them using this technique, and they have to paraphrase exactly what is said to them. Well, man, I'll tell you, it totally changed mm -hmm. their whole, because you now you've got to pay attention mm -hmm. and paraphrase back to them, and then they have guys in there, you know, kind of walking through it. The tone of their discussions totally changed. Mm -hmm. It was amazing to see the difference. But I tell the guys, don't remember all this. If you just paraphrase back to your exactly. whoever, it is, boss, wife, whatever, you'd be amazed because you'll stop thinking about what I want to say mm -hmm. in rebuttal, and I'll be thinking about what I I be listening to what you're saying. It was huge. Because often, especially in couples, but it can be in parent, children, or friend. You're just you're, this is what you're doing. Yeah. And it's uh, that technique. It's sometimes called reflective listening. And when I do my premarital counseling, I do the same thing. But I, I try to tell them, one of the things you should develop as a part of your skills in talking with each other is, honey, did I hear you say, you know, you know what I mean? What you're doing reflecting, you're, you're, you're saying back, did I hear you say, and then whatever it was. And what are you, you're, what are you communicating by that? You're, I care. I respect your opinion. What you say is valuable. It's so valuable. I want to make sure I really got it. And, and you are absolutely right. If a couple begins to make that a part of their communication process, a lot of yelling stops. And they're not going like this. They, they really are connecting. Oh, my goodness. It, especially if they're 
60 years old and had been married for 35, 40 years to, to break that. Oh. That's why it's so valuable to get these young couples really thinking about that. This is one of the very important skills of, of communicating. Uh, well, we sort of got off on a bunny trail, but in a way we didn't, I, I don't think, because this, this whole discussion is really reflecting the wise choice. Of, 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 of living and how you think about what wisdom looks like and so on. Okay? Let's shift over to chapter 11 now because he, a lot of what he says in the rest of that, he said that before and it's not that it's important, but chapter 11 is, is now beginning to bring everything to a conclusion and again, he's going to repeat some of the things that he's saying, but in light, in light of this, this is what he's been talking about for about five chapters. How do I live my life? What does a life of faith and trust and obedience in God look like? And again, as he's done, this is wisdom literature, so some of the, these are proverbial statements. These are proverbs. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. <laughs> what in the world? What in the world that does, does that mean? Well, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. There are many, many, many opportunities out there. Take advantage of them. This, I've, uh, maybe you have never heard this, but I have heard verse 1 often used in business. Take advantage of many, many opportunities. If you, if you truly believe that God is in control and you believe in his sovereignty, you believe in his character, quality, and you're... You're seeking to be a wise person, faith in him, trusting him, and obeying him. Then don't be afraid to take risks. You know, take advantage of opportunities. Life is filled with opportunities. Verse 2. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Okay, what's he saying there? Divide your portion seven, even eight. Be, be a very generous person. You, you don't know what misfortunes lie ahead for you or for others, but be very generous. Divide what you have into six, seven, eight. Yeah, give it away. Be generous. Be a generous person. Again, these are proverbs. But that's so, in light of all of this, very practically speaking, take advantage of opportunities because you trust in the Lord. And be generous. Because misfortune is a part of life. Be generous. Why? Again, who owns everything? You're a good steward of what God's given you. So be generous. Is God generous? I, I mean, I, I hope you would answer yes. <laughs> this doesn't relate just to money, does it? Oh, not at all. No, no. I mean, that's what first comes into our mind, but it's not necessarily just money. It's time. You know, it's it, it can be... Helping people, you know, in your neighborhood, I don't make this up, but uh, for a sickness or illness or debilitation, can't cut the grass, maybe you can help them do I mean, just you're just being generous, being a generous person, a generous lifestyle. Um, thirdly, I love this. It's, again, it's like a proverb. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth today. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. 
Again, Proverbs, what is he really saying there? You can't control either one of those things. You have absolutely nothing to do with the rain. You have absolutely nothing to do with a tree, and, and not, not that you're cutting it down. Obviously, you can control that. But it's just the randomness of a tree falling. But who controls both of those? God does. The Bible says a little bird does not fall from a tree without God knowing about it. I mean, it's, it's all those things. So Solomon is not Just think, these are, very, these are proverbs, but they're applications now. Okay, what do we do? What's our life look like? Take advantage of opportunity. God's in control. Be generous. And remember, you are very limited. That's what finite means. There's an awful lot you can't control. Don't think you can control it. That is, that is, one, of, that is one of the dynamics of the postmodern life that is, is, I think, very serious. We are used to and that's part of who we are with our technology. We are used to being able to control so much of our lives. We can control the temperature of our rooms, air conditioning or heat. I mean, would, can any of you imagine today buying a vehicle that wouldn't have air conditioning in it? I mean, that's just, you don't even think that way. But, you know, it isn't that many years ago where they would ask, do you want air conditioning or don't you? You know, when Peggy and I were real poor, when I was in graduate school, we had to make that choice. And we, we chose no air conditioning because it saved us $650 in the car. I mean, today I wouldn't even think about that. Of course I want air conditioning. And that's when we lived in Dallas, Texas. Who would live in Dallas without air conditioning? But when you're poor and you don't have any, okay, that's what we'll do. But I'm, I'm being a little facetious. I remember when I was a young boy in my parents' house, they didn't have air conditioning, they didn't have a fan. I remember in July and I was lying in my bed just sweating. <laughs> and I remember saying, Lord, this can't be your perfect will for my life. Yeah, do you think it's true? Somebody said that when they came up with air conditioning, that was one of the worst things that happened in the sense of it took people... It put people back in the homes because at night, I guess, they would go out and this yeah. because it was so hot in the house, you'd go outside. And it's very hard for me to conclude it's one of the worst things that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's technologically one of the greatest things that's ever happened. But in terms, in terms, in terms of social interaction yeah. in neighborhoods, that, that that's been shown to be true. Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist at Harvard, has written a book called Bowling Alone. We are now a culture that bowls alone. Now, what he means by that is just those kinds of things. The technology of our world has caused us to be insulated. We don't go out and have block parties. We don't have, and you know, there are a lot of other reasons for that. But I think there's some real truth to that. But let's not go back to a world without air conditioning. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Can I ask one question, though? Could you explain to me on verse 1? You said it's about opportunity. How, how do you get that out of that first verse? I don't remember. I'm Cast your bread on the waters, and you'll find that for many days. How does that turn into opportunity? Um, What's the, the, um, it's a metaphor, it's a proverb. Um, the society in which Solomon lived is a very agricultural society, okay? Um, and, and grain and, and, and so on. How, how, do, I, how do I think about... Um, the opportunities of my life. He says, well, it's like taking bread and you cast it, you cast it out. And um, maybe in a couple of days you'll find it again. It's, 
It's, the best way to understand that, it seems, is that God's in control of earth and God's sovereign, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean you don't take risks, you don't take advantage of opportunities, that you actually believe God is sending you, because the return on that is guaranteed. It's either going to be a negative return, it's going to be a positive return, but don't be afraid. Take advantage of opportunities. So it's almost like a sowing? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, again, I mean, I've seen this, uh, and they're, they're usually Christian, but I've seen this in businesses. I've never heard it before. That it's these are opportunities to cast a bed on, on the waters, the surface of the water. So. Were they by some chance maybe throwing bread out there to attract fish? That they would of course, catch? of course. Mm-hmm. Or birds, mm-hmm. uh, birds. Mark? He's talking about the bread seeds, like he's talking about the grain, right? Uh-huh. He's talking about instead of grinding the grain and make bread, throw them on the, on the ground and they're going to bring up more grains. Uh, it could it could be, but um, it, it's it's probably not just the grain. It's it's the product of the grain, which is the bread, because that's yeah yeah. But um, you know, like what well, Jim Jim had a good thought there. It's like uh, you know, I remember down at um, I'm sure I'm certain it's still there, but down at the Henry Dooley Zoo. They have that one lake, and there's a bridge over it, and just fish are there constantly. And the kids used to always just take bread. Peggy would save the crust of the bread, and, you know, for three or four weeks, and get and so they'd stand there and just why? Because it would attract the fish, and it was, they wanted to see it. And then ducks would come along, and you know, all those crazy things. But it's that it, it could be you're casting your bread, the opportunities for fish, the opportunities for for birds. I mean, those kinds of things. They're opportunities. It's a metaphor for. Don't be afraid to cast your bread. Opportunities are out there. Take advantage of The fourth point is in verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow. He who looks at the clouds will not reap. Okay, now that's not hard to figure out. You're a farmer. And you're waiting for the perfect day. No wind, no clouds. If you wait for the perfect day, you may never get your crop sown for the year. You, you, you cannot, in life, you cannot demand absolute certainty about knowledge of the future. You can't. Because after all, you're trusting in the one who holds the future. Because if you demand absolute certainty about the future, you'll probably end up doing nothing. You'll never take a risk. You'll never take a step of faith. You'll never evidence trust. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, so again, these are his conclusions to everything he's been saying in the book. And this stuff isn't terribly profound. It's common sense stuff. But if you walk the life of faith with God, trust in him and obey him, this is reason. It's a reasonable way to live. Did I see another hand? Andrew, did I see your hand? No, I okay. Okay. I, I saw. I. I don't want to miss somebody. Go. Go. Uh, go to the fifth verse. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. I think that's fascinating. The path of the wind. Yeah, I don't. You never see the wind. And in the ancient world how the bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman. 
we sort of understand that medically, but still it's a miracle. I've told you, haven't I, that my son and daughter-in-law are expecting the first baby. I told you that in the night. And they're sending us about every week. It is. It's every week. They send us these high-definition ultrasound. They're unbelievable. And we're just watching little George James Peter grow. And he's just he's getting bigger. <laughs> Last Wednesday night, I think it was, they sent us a, a, a picture. And it's, it's just an incredible picture of little George's face. And so we got it on our large computer at home, and Peggy's sitting there looking. She says, I wonder who he looks like. I said to her, honey, he's only about five and a half months old in the womb. Let's wait a few more months. I mean, I was just, I was absolutely hilarious. I never even crossed my mind. But a mother, or a grandmother in this case, that's really important. Trying to figure out, does he look more like Jonathan or Irene? I'm like, Oh my goodness! But it's it is it's it is still a miracle. The growth of a baby and a mother is a miracle. It's 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 such a mystery, and so he uses those two illustrations. And so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. It's back to what we were talking about last week. God's infinite. God's eternal. We're finite and temporal. So if that is if what the truth of verse five, if that is true, then what's our response? Faith and trust. If we seek absolute certainty and comprehensive, exhaustive understanding of everything, it'll never happen. Because we're not God. So that simple truth insists on a response of faith and trust. So your so now this is kind of the conclusion of, of the matter. Sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. What's the point of verse six? <clears throat> Tomorrow has no guarantees. So therefore, you don't do anything. Therefore, you don't sow your seed. No, that's not what it means. Because we are finite and we're temporal. We do not know what tomorrow will hold. So what do we do? We trust in our God who holds tomorrow. So these six verses, they're pithy, short, but very succinct, common sense ways of thinking about our lives in light of this. Because the fool... The fool doesn't live like that, necessarily. So, I mean, it's, you know, you read those six verses and you, you kind of unpack and say, wow, that's so simple, but it's so profound. This is the way I should live my life. A life of faith, a life of trust, a life of obedience. And if you add to that, was one of the, we don't have that up there now, but we add to that that our God is good, which he is, then that means our trust in him means that ultimately, ultimately everything will work out. Now that can only be true from the perspective of eternity. Because we, some of us are going to get sick. Some of us are going to experience terrible tragedy. Some of us are going to experience experience. Uh, horrific, unexpected developments in life. 
But if our God is God, he's going to take care of us ultimately. All right. Good stuff. I have to go back to this stuff again and again and again. Probably you guys don't. You, you, you read it. You, you internalize it. It's yours. It's cemented in there. I constantly have to go back to this stuff. And I just have to keep reminding myself of these truths. Last spring, seven of the juniors and seniors, now this semester, but last, last spring they came to me. It was, it was out of the blue. It really caught me off guard. And they came to me and they said, Dr. Eckman, um, we, would, we would like you uh, to organize a mentoring group for us. And I said, okay, no, that's an important question. What do you mean by that? We would like you to mentor us. I thought that's what they meant. I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, it had been before I got into leadership when I was just on the fact that I used to always have a group of guys I met with. But I hadn't done that for a long time, and I'm, you know, I'm old now and decrepit and run down and over the hill and all those things. And it, it really caught me off guard, and I said to them, I said, I really, I really need to think about this because I'm still very busy with a lot of things. I'm very involved in my church, and plus the Bible studies I teach. And I said, let me think about that. So what I did is uh, I kind of put some parameters around, and I said to the Lord, well, Lord, I know it isn't that this isn't an important thing to do, but I have to make sure it's a wise thing for me to do. So I'm going to put parameters on it. It can only be at this time because of my schedule. It's going to be this day of the week, and it, and it would have to be over the lunch hour in the dining commons because I'm only on campus a couple of days a week. And so I said, if all of that works out for these guys and they, they, they will embrace it, then I will know that this is a wise choice for me. Otherwise, I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm just going to say, no, it doesn't fit. Well, you know what happened. <laughs> I set the time. I set over lunch. I put all the parameters, and every single one of them said, We'll do it. Well, we just started. Yesterday was the first day. And, uh, you know, I honestly, I spent an awful lot of time this summer thinking and praying about this. Because what do you say? I'm 67. These are 21, 20, 20, 21, 22 year old guys. I mean, there's a lot I can say. So I thought, my goodness, what do I say? What's the most important thing? How do you frame mentoring? So what I, I just, I was reading the stuff in preparation for today. And it reminded me again, this is what I'm really trying to get across these guys. And there are three things that we're going to be focusing on. Walking with God, leadership development, and accountability. They're the most important things, I think, for a young man to really wrap his arms around. And it's in that order, walking with God. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are the characteristics of that? <coughs> and then, because <clears throat> you know, all of these guys, to one degree or another, are going to be leaders. And so helping them to think about that, what God's doing. And that, from my vintage point anyway, that's a long-range part of God's involvement. God, it takes God a long time to develop leaders. You don't graduate from college and be a leader. I mean, you sort of are, but I mean, to really, it takes a lot of time. And then the third one is there's got to be accountability. So I've given you guys this quite a few years ago. And I, get, I have a list of questions that we must have the freedom to ask each other as men. And in this group, that's what we're going to do. <clears throat> because mentoring 
Mentoring isn't any highfalutin theology. Mentoring is about how do I live my life. That's really what it's about. So we got started yesterday, and they all said they'll come back in two weeks. So we'll see. I'll keep you posted. All right. That's what Solomon, Solomon's our mentor in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's mentoring us. He's made a lot of mistakes. He's made a lot of stupid, stupid decisions. But he wants us to learn from his mistakes. He's mentoring us. Around this table, we've made a lot of stupid mistakes and decisions in our lives. And so, what do you say going forward to us in that regard? I think, now there's so many ways I can respond to that, but what comes to my mind initially is what you see uh, in Paul's language in the book of the Philippians, in book of uh, his letter to the Philippian church. Forgetting what is behind, I press on to the high calling. I think one of the, the, the most enslaving traps that we can get ourselves in into as men, and, and as, just as human, but as men, because that's where all men, is that backward look. The guilt, disappointment, all the things that you've done that you wish you wouldn't have done them. I mean, Paul, I mean, Paul's, that's why he's such a great example. Paul did horrible things before he came to faith. I mean, absolutely, he killed many, many, many Christians in the name of God. He, as a Jew, he believed he was doing God's will. He tells us in Acts 22 when he's rehearsing his life, he says, with a good conscience, I persecuted the church. How could he say that? A good conscience as a Jewish member of the Sanhedrin, believing that Christians were a threat to Judaism, I persecuted them. But Paul said, I, I've put all that behind me now. Because he could camp on that. He could say, oh my goodness, the things that I did. They were terrible things. But forgetting what is behind, I press on. We cannot be backward-looking people. We have to be forward-looking people because God, if we put our faith in Jesus, he no longer holds us. He's not, remember what you did 22 years ago? I still have that on you. That is not our God. That's not our God. Jim, you know, the thing I would say, Fred, too, is for me, I've learned that all those mistakes have been great for me as a strength as I teach and work with God because I can sit there and point to them I made these mistakes here. Here's what I've learned over these years. Too many times I think we discount ourselves because we are getting older and a lot of we go, well, how do I relate to them? It's not about relate. You know, it's about, I mean, you want to relate to them, but I can bring so much to that conversation. I haven't been in prison, but I have experienced these things, and mm -hmm. I can bring them experience and give them insight that mm -hmm. gives me some credibility. So some, I really looked at those mistakes as a real strength for me. Mm -hmm. As long as they're not hampering you, exactly. enslaving you, wrapped around your neck like an albatross, you you've learned from them. You you know, it gets you. Yeah. Let's conclude today with the remaining verses of chapter eleven, and then next week we'll deal with twelve. Chapter 12, 1 through 7 is about old age. So if you're real old, you may not want to come. 
And it really, it's really great. It's, it's a hilarious passage, but it's very important. Verse 7 through 10 is the close of the matter. Enjoy the present. Look forward to the future. That's the, that's the final, final mentoring counsel from our mentor. If you are a wise person, you're walking with God, you're trusting in God, and you're seeking to obey God, enjoy the present, look forward to the future. Because your present is in the hands of God. Your future is in the hands of God. Now, again, these are Proverbs. The light is pleasant. It's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Contrast, days of light, life. Days of darkness, death. You can't avoid either one. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Follow the impulses of your heart, the desires of your, of your eyes, but know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. You are accountable to him. Enjoy life, but remember you're accountable for the choices you make. Faith, trust, obedience. It matters how you live your life. But enjoy the life that God gives you. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. <laughs> Again, pr- proverbial statements, but enjoy life and look forward to the future. And as a Christian, with all of the revelation of the, old, of the New Testament as well, we have a clearer understanding of the future from God's perspective. It's all wrapped around the return of Christ. <laughs> but practically speaking, Enjoy the life God gives you, but anticipate the future, because both are in his hands. <clears throat> I have told you this before, but um, I'm going to do it again. I studied under a man who, uh, I was in a group with him, and he was a professor, and his name was Howard Hendricks, and he used to say to I think he must have said this 15 times, man, many of you in this room are going to get to heaven, and Jesus is going to say to you, I really wanted you to enjoy it more. You understand what you meant by that? Enjoy enjoy the life I've given you. Enjoy life. H.L. Mencken used to say, Christians are that group of people that have that haunting thought that somewhere, someone is happy. You have to think about that. Mencken said that about Christians. Mencken was a reporter for the Baltimore son in the early 20th century and he was was an antagonist of Christianity he hated Christianity but you know where did he get that because that's what he saw a lot of Christians (laughs) and that is not the way God wants us to live so Solomon is done as our mentor now chapter 12 is he he says but there is the reality of old age and that's what he's going to deal with in the first couple of verses for seven verses actually And then he's going to conclude the matter in verse 13. He's going to sum up everything in one verse. So we'll do all that next week, and I'll probably distribute the stuff for Philippians as well. I'm going to send it to Fred electronically. But I think it's it's a great transition uh, because Philippians um, 
Philippians is filled with the same kind of word, but it's a powerful epistle to a church that Paul says nothing negative about this church of Philippi. He doesn't say one negative thing about them. He's on a council, but it's nothing negative. So it's, it's a cool book to study. All right? We thought it would be nice uplifting yeah, depending on the spirit uh, of your heart when you're reading it, it's a very depressing book. Yeah. But we're beyond that. But remember what he's doing. Well, men, uh, uh, we're, we will very easily finish Ecclesiastes next week. I hope it was valuable for you to study it with me. It's a, it's a wonderful book. It's one of my favorites. It's good to see all of you, and uh, hope you're doing well. Some of you I don't see regularly. Some of you I see spasmodically, but most of you I enjoy seeing you. Mm. I have to think about that. No, I really enjoy seeing you. It's good to see you. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for the day and again for the rain. The Bible says good things come from rain, and uh, we certainly, after a pretty dry uh, July and half of August, it's a blessing. Now, flooding can result, but those things we just put into your hands. We do thank you for the good moisture. Thank you, too, for these men. Thank you as we've uh, been together these months studying Solomon's reflections on life. A man who started out well ended up terrible. A man who should have lived one of the best, most model lives in all of the Bible, and he didn't. He made foolish choices despite the fact that he was wise. He's now giving us reflections on his choices. As we try to apply some of this, chapter 11, I think they're very piercing, pithy, but simple common sense axioms for living. Help us to apply it to our lives. And as we talked a moment or two ago, just constantly remind ourselves of these things. This is what living a life of faith, of trust, and obedience looks like. It's the wise life. It's not the life of a fool. It's the life of a wise person. Lord, be with these men. I know them. Many of them I know a little better, but I really don't know any of them well. I don't know what their struggles are. I don't know what their internal uh, issues might be, even perhaps issues with their kids or with their spouse. But I do know one thing. Their walk with you is the most important thing of their life. And as that is enhanced and strengthened, you give wisdom and discernment in other areas of life which can be troublesome and problematic. You're a good God, and the most important thing in our lives for us is to choose each day to walk with you, have our hands in you, not just following you, but we're walking with you. We are dependent on you, we trust in you, and we affirm that you're an infinite, eternal God, but you have chosen to have a relationship with us, and Jesus has made that possible. We love you for that. We want to represent you well in all we do and all we say. Enable us to do that. We'll look forward next week to closing our study and starting Philippian. Give us a sense of anticipation as we're apart from one another. We'll look forward to regathering next Wednesday. In Christ's name, amen.